Hi guys, Mike here. Today's episode, I found a really uplifting one for those wanting to get into film and TV. I talked to the head of one of the world's best film schools, the NFTS, and he gives a masterclass on how to use strategy in your career, how things will work out in the end, as well as touching, of course, on best practices for applying to film school and his opinion on both sides of the question, should you go to film school from the man who runs one? That's enough from me. Here's the episode. But I think the, the key to success was was being yourself, but knowing what you do. It was like, I, I just said to them, well, guys, you know, you shot Billy Elliot. There is nothing I'm going to tell you that you don't know about cinematography. That, that would be embarrassing if I even tried. But you know what, Brian? I know what students need. Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a screenwriter and production team member working for studios in London. Each episode, I bring you advice and stories from film and TV professionals to help educate and empower the next generation of filmmakers and crew. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Today's guest is an exciting first for the show, a preeminent name in the world of film and television education. With a frankly incredible amount of qualifications and facets to his CV, including a doctorate from the University of Bristol, our guest now sits as a fellow of the Higher Education Academy and the National Association of Television Production Executives, as a member of BAFTA, and as an advisor on education to the Royal Television Society. But believe it or not, that's not even his day job. That is, of course, as the current director of the world-renowned National Film and Television School in Beaconsfield, England, alumni of which include none other than Sir Roger Deakins, Nick Park, and Harry Potter director David Yates, as well as hundreds more. Our guest is Dr. John Wardle. How are you doing today? I'm very well, Mike. Thank you. Great to be on the show. Thanks for being here. Now, John, I know that you've listened to a couple of our episodes and I ask all of my guests the same first question. What did your parents do and did it affect your career choices moving forward? My mum was a teacher and my dad worked in, uh, he did, well, he was involved in designing the first cash machine, which they don't really exist as much anymore, do they? Who uses cash? So no, nothing to do with film and TV. Grew up in Coventry. Uh, I ended up in getting into what I'm doing because of an inspirational drama teacher, really, and some opportunities that came from that. And I always loved film and I always loved television and uh, what a dream to be able to do it or be kind of part of that industry. But it didn't necessarily feel achievable. I'm an example of somebody who's benefited from, you know, teachers and other mentors who have, who have created those opportunities for me and, and kind of extended a hand in and helped pull me in. Wow. Yeah. I'm really interested in mentors and those relationships, which foster careers like your own. Do you have any memories of that drama teacher specifically? Yeah. His name was William. And uh, I was at Sixth Form College in Eastbourne by that point. My family had moved to Eastbourne and I never wanted to, I did A-level drama and I never wanted to be a performer. I was always drawn to the kind of backstage, stage management, lighting, those sorts of things. And he was just really supportive of that. And when he found out about my kind of love of film and TV, he was like, wow, I've, I've got uh, my sister-in-law works in television. Maybe I could ask her to give you some work experience. And his sister ended up being, uh, sister-in-law ended up being Lissa Evans, who produced Father Ted. Oh, Now she's quite a famous novelist. She wrote uh, uh, their finest and various of old baggage and things like that. And uh, she took me on for a week of work experience and I never left. I worked on every series of Father Ted, uh, the Christmas special, uh, the three series. And 
And it was just a fantastic kind of intro to actors, to script preparation and kind of really focusing on what's on the page and the routine of recording in front of a live audience every week. So it was a fantastic opportunity. And I look back at that and I've got a lot to thank William for and Lissa for giving me that opportunity. And that's why I'm so passionate now, I think, about giving other people those opportunities. Amazing. I love Father Ted, famously one of Spielberg's favourite TV shows. Did yeah. you have any interactions with Graham Lynham? Oh, lots. Yeah. And, uh, and Arthur and all the kind of guest stars, you know, Graham Norton's in it. Kevin, who went on to play one of the lead roles in, um, in Train Spotting's in an episode. And yeah, I mean, it, amazing cast and an amazing moment. And I feel very privileged that that was part of my life. I dressed as a giant peanut for one of the episodes. <laughs> so, you know, I, I got to do a lot of cool things uh, at 17 years old. And I'd get the train up to London, 17, 18, basically I was on that cusp. And I got the train up to London for the rehearsal days and then the record. Uh, every week and then I'd go back to college and do a bit of that and then university eventually and then go back to London for the rehearsals and the records and and it was fun it was just brilliant and absolutely gave me the bug that this was an industry I wanted to be part of and what did your parents make of you doing this because you know your father was making cash machines Uh, it's not (laughs) it's not a very similar career what did they think about it all they were supportive in the sense that um they totally believed in following your passions. My dad's actually now given up doing that and he runs a food bank because he felt like that was something he wanted to make a difference in. So they've always been supportive of that. Um, But it was a totally alien world to them and it still is. You know, um, when I go home at Christmas and Easter and things like that and we talk about it, I think they're like, I really, this is a world we don't really understand. Whereas my brother, he uh, did a law degree. It looked like he was going to be a lawyer, solicitor, and then pivoted into being a lecturer in a college. And that was more familiar. So maybe I'm a blend of that now, maybe working in higher, you know, in the NFTS and in higher education is kind of the acceptable face of show business for them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Now, as we heard in the intro, you've got an awful lot of qualifications, John. So please fact check me if I'm wrong on this. But am I right that the first undergrad you had was in TV production at Bournemouth? Yeah, that was amazing. I, I love that. It, Bournemouth is a, was a great place. We made a lot of work. I met a lot of friends. A lot of my friends from that course now hold senior roles in various bits of the industry. It was fantastic. But I also learned a lot there. So, for example, I went there like every kind of 18-year-old thinking, oh, I'm going to be a director or a cinematographer. And I, and I realised there was about halfway through the course where you had to pick a specialism. And by picking a specialism, it then determined who you worked with for graduation projects. And I knew if I picked cinematography or any of those sorts of roles, I was never getting on anyone's graduation project or anyone I wanted to work with. So I picked sound recording. Hmm. I did it completely strategically because I realised there were much more talented cinematographers. And I became the go-to person in the year to do sound for your your grad film and worked on lots of films. It got me my first job on leaving, but it wasn't necessarily an area of passion. As I said, it was a strategic choice. I wish that somebody at that point had told me what a producer did. I don't really think Bournemouth did a good job of telling me about that. They're probably better at that now. Uh, maybe my life would have gone in a slightly different direction. But I picked sound and I directed a bit and I realised in directing that I wasn't even the most talented director in my small cohort of 50. <laughs> and 
I was like, and we're one course out of maybe 200 in the UK. And there's all these, and I thought, God, if I'm not even the most talented or even in the top five on my course, I've got no chance on leaving. And so that was, you know, I look back on that and think, oh, you, you know, you can look back on it and think, oh, I gave up my dreams maybe at that point. But actually it was the making of me because uh, I got on and got further faster because I made those choices earlier. So I loved being there. It was great. I made a lot of work. Bournemouth's a great place to be a student, lots of friends. Um, and as I said, I grew up and I learned a lot about if I was going to work in film and TV, what did that look like? And a, a lot of what we do now at the NFTS is go out and talk to people about the fact that there's not the only roles in film are not director and cinematographer. Yeah. You know, I've got 66 teenagers here at the film school this week and and you know, sound recording, visual effects, production design, editing. It's getting them excited about those areas and also areas of distribution, exhibition, uh, business affairs and production accounting. And I think we do, we're do. we pretty poor as an industry at exciting people about some of those other, those other roles, really important roles that are fantastic jobs and you get paid well for as well. But there's an obsession with directors and cinematographers uh, which is unhealthy and is, is stifling the, the it, it, it creates the skill shortages we talk about long term. Well, you don't see the sound recordists in the junket interviews, which is probably why. Right. Yeah. So everybody name a sound recorder. I mean, name a cinematographer. And most people can reach for Roger Deakins, who very proud as an alumnus. But name a sound recordist, a bit harder. And that's a problem, you know, and, and it's and that's something we've got to change. So after Bournemouth, your first degree. Was there a bit of a will they, won't they with your career as going into crew? Because obviously, to my understanding, you then stayed on at Bournemouth and moved into the educational sort of bodies that are there. Did you have a, oh, I'm going to go into crew? What happened there? Yeah, there was a, there was a, a moment of change where actually I got my first job on a Channel 4 documentary straight after as a sound recordist. It was at the moment where unscripted teams were being encouraged to have single camera sound record, like single people who did it all. And this particular director didn't want that. She wanted a separate separate camera person to sound recordist. But production wasn't going to pay a premium for that. So I was drafted in as a new graduate to be the sound recordist. Great opportunity. It was, on a, it was part of the cutting edge strand. So I did that. And then I went and worked for various other production companies doing shows like The Real Dating Show and the Far- A Farmer Wants a Wife and uh, <laughs> shows like that. And it was kind of exciting to start with, but then I realized that it took a massive toll on your life. I'd get phone calls when I was working on the real dating show. I remember we'd film three shoot, three dates a day. So we'd do one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and one in the evening. And you'd get home at maybe kind of 11 o'clock at night. And then you'd think you're going to be in Birmingham the next day. I live in Eastbourne at this point. And they'd get a phone call at 11 o'clock saying, actually, the date changed. You're now not going to Birmingham. You're going to Kent. And so you get your map out of this book because Google Maps didn't exist at this point. And you try and plot that out and you wouldn't really sleep because you'd be anxious because you hadn't really worked it out. And your girlfriend or partner would be like, so you're not going to be back for dinner tomorrow then. You're going to be... And I just found that really tough. And then a phone call came in from my former head of department at Bournemouth. And he said, we've got a role for somebody to teach sound recording. Are you interested? And I thought a regular salary, regular hours, chance to continue my own development. Because I didn't, I knew I had landed in an area 
for strategic reasons, not love, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, I bit his hand off. So moved back to Bournemouth and worked my way up basically from being the most junior member, you know, junior person to on the management team of the of the of the school. And and the school is probably one of the biggest media departments in the country. It's got something like 3,000 students in its in the department. And over about 10 years, I worked my way through. And I did an MBA during that time and I did a doctorate. I did those because at different points, I was interested in different things. So the MBA was because I did think, okay, well, maybe I could build my life teaching media business, you know, produce, uh, so commissioning, pitching, regulation, uh, all that sort of stuff. And I taught that for a bit, having done the MBA and quite enjoyed that and made really good industry connections through drafting guests in. And then I did the doctorate when I realized that actually I was probably going to spend my life in education and actually having a, a doctorate would be really important to that. It's a kind of qualification matter in higher education. And so I, I did that. I didn't enjoy it particularly. I had two children during that time. Wow. It was a grind, you know, like every Sunday I'd go to the library and I'd say to my wife, I'm not going home until I've written a thousand words. And some days I'd be there three hours. Some days I'd be there 12 hours. Um, and she got that and she was incredibly supportive, but, um, but did I love it and enjoy it? Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Amazing. And the, one of the things at Bournemouth, which is an intriguing title, which is certainly something I don't think any of my other guests are ever going to be anywhere near was the director of the center for excellence in media practice, which sounds a little bit like you might've been a secret agent. <laughs> <laughs> so do you know what that was? That was a government intervention where they wanted to value. Basically there was a big focus on the fact that universities have become obsessed with research and they said, we really want people who are focused on teaching excellence. How do we get back to our universities, making sure students have the best experience possible? And so I got the job leading that centre and there was some really decent government some financial support for it. And we did some really interesting things, new, wrote new sorts of courses, introduced new tools, um, taught and, you know, just experimented with how we taught and involved students in that and I learned a huge amount from that but towards the end of that grant um, that's when I saw the job advertised at the NFTS and I was really happy in Bournemouth as I said I had two children I was they were really little living by the sea in Bournemouth was great I had job security but when I saw that advert in the Guardian for the director of curriculum job at the NFTS I thought oh god that's that's something that doesn't come up very often in fact I think the previous post holder had done that job for 30 years so I thought, if I don't apply for it now, uh, it may not come up again until I'm in my 60s. So making that move was a massive moment in my life. And I arrived at the film school slightly as the outsider. I arrived as somebody totally different to everybody else they'd ever employed. So I remember at my interview, which weirdly was in this room, oh. <laughs> and it had Simon Ralph, famous producer and... Nick Powell, who eventually became my boss and friend, and Simon Shapps, who at the time was a senior executive at ITV, and they were interviewing me. And I remember Simon Ralph saying to me, John, talk to us about your work as a filmmaker. And I said, well, this is going to be really short, Simon, because I don't think of myself like that. I've spent my whole life around film and television education. But, you know, Brian Tofano runs your cinematography department. Brian shot Trainspotting. Billy Elliot, Quadrophenia. I said, if I go and talk to him and say I'm a 
filmmaker. He's going to laugh in my face. I've made some short films. I've been around film sets, but I'm not a filmmaker. And I said, but you don't need that anyway, because you've got these amazing people. What you need is somebody who understands what students want, how courses run, how to do assessment well, how to, how to manage group work. And they were obviously convinced about it enough because I got the job. And uh, but uh, definitely when I arrived, there was a bit of I think there was a bit of suspicion at the school at the start about, oh, they're bringing in this person from higher education. And we're all film school. We're all film industry people. But I think the, the key to success was was being yourself, but knowing what you do it was like I, I just said to them, well, guys, you know, you shot Billy Elliot. There is nothing I'm going to tell you that you don't know about cinematography. You know, that, that would be embarrassing if I even tried. But you know what, Brian? I know what students need and how to run a course and how to structure things. And in the end, I think I was really embraced as an ally. I think they saw me as somebody who could help them do their jobs better. And that's always how I've kind of positioned myself at the school is my job is to help the heads of department do what they do even better than they, you know, and because they're all from the film industry. So they've not got a doctorate in education and they've not spent their time thinking about students. So it's about just knowing what you offer, what they offer, and seeing it not as a competition, but about how do you complement each other. Brilliant. I think that's really cool how you've carved your own niche. And I think you're absolutely right to do that because famously film crew are pretty scared of outsiders generally. So smashed it. Brilliant. Um, one question that I do have for the listeners, which will be one that they really want to ask about is obviously you became the director in 2017 of the NFTS, one of the world's most famous film schools. They'll be keen to hear about the application process. Yeah. Do they need a portfolio? How does that work as an entry requirement? Yeah, it really varies. So if you're applying for directing or cinematography, you absolutely do. And we get a disproportionate number of applications for those courses than any others. And we're looking for people because they're so, those roles are at the apex of everybody else's experience. Um, we, do, we are looking for people with solid experience who are going to use their time at the NFTS to catapult onto something else. Whereas for sound recording, say, thing I flirted with in my youth or um, assistant directing or production management, what would that portfolio be? It would be harder to pin down. And so what we're really looking for is uh, related experience. There's a, I'll probably get it wrong, but there was a great AD student, a girl called Stephanie, who did our AD course in one of the first years. So our assistant directing course. And she had no film and TV experience, but she had worked as part of a, uh, the pit crew in a Formula One team. And actually, you can see the parallels there. You're like, okay, high-performing team, pressure situation. And she came in to do the course, has flourished, now works on big shows, big film and TV projects. And we have people who have transitioned from events and other things. So the answer to the question really is it depends. But I would actually say more of our courses don't require a portfolio than ones that do, if that makes sense. But the ones that do, it's because we get so many applications that we're really trying to sit. It's fine detail that is going to define who we take in that final 10 students. Do people also do them online these days? They do anything interesting with portfolios? There's lots of website tools now, isn't there? Yeah, we get those sorts of things. And definitely there's a, there's a big range across the courses. I think with production design, people still tend to print stuff off and send it in. And if they've made, if they've got portfolios, they want us to see it in the best possible way. So that's that's typical, but we don't require it. I think it's such a range across the courses. But I think my my view is 
that we might get many more applications for directing, but it doesn't mean the quality is any better than the fewer that we get for production design. We get fewer for production design, but you know what? We could probably say everybody who applies, really, because if you've worked out you want to be a production designer, if you've bothered to put a portfolio together, then you're, you're pretty serious. You know? And uh, the quality of people who apply is generally very good. I think statistically across the school, it's something like 11 applications for every place, but it's lumpy. So it might be two or three applications per place on, say, sound recording and 22 applications per place on directing. It really varies. Should I go to film school is possibly the most asked question of those wanting to have a career in the business. Naturally, you have quite a lot of skin in the game, but I would love to hear your perspective, if you feel okay with it, on kind of both sides of that equation. Yeah, I think it really depends what you want to do. I think there is definitely a route for people to just get in, work your way up and take 10 years to work your way through from being a runner through the ranks. What I think happens though, and this is where a lot of our applicants come from, is you get told that's possible and then five or six years in, you think, crikey, I've been doing this quite a long time now. How am I going to actually make the jump from being a camera assistant to being the director of photography? How am I going to make that jump from being a director's assistant to the director? <laughs> and really, the only way to make that jump is to have a portfolio of work. And so most people come to the school to build that portfolio. Lewis Arnold's a good example. Lewis did our directing fiction course. He was working as an AD before he came to the school. And I think he thought, either put up or shut up. If I want to be a director, I've got to commit to trying to do that. And I know if I go to the NFTS, I'll make three substantive short films. And then after that, you know, I can make a decision about whether I'm, I'm cut out for this. And he, he actually hasn't stopped working since he does. He just did time on BBC One and got a BAFTA nomination, various other things. Wow. And I would say that's quite a typical example of people who have got to a certain level in the industry and thought, but what I really want to do is this. And this production company or these companies, are, they ain't going to give me that gig. There's always somebody else who's got the portfolio to get that job ahead of me. And so that's why people come. The other thing I'd say is people often say to me, but, oh, it's really expensive. And, I, and I'll say, well, there's two things about that. One is if you're a Brit, you're pretty likely to get some level of scholarship support. It's means tested, but there is absolutely scholarship support available. I think it's something like, eight out of 10 students last year. So 80% of the British students got some level of financial support last year. But the other thing about it is, and if you're on a cinematography course or a directing course or an editing course, is we pay for all the films. So, you know, you're going to make three and a half. We basically make three big short films on the, on the fiction course and a small film, a kind of half film. Uh, it's like five minutes. So you're going to make four films in two years and we're going to give you the budgets, the kit, the crew, the support to make them. So if you took your 14 grand, say, that you were going to pay us, although, as I said, not everybody even pays that, um, you'd struggle to make a substantive short film for 14 grand. If you've got to hire the equipment, if you've got to get the crew, if you've got to pay the actors. And, and that's the argument I often say to people. If nothing else, if you, if you and I, by the way, I don't recommend this, if you were to check out of all the teaching and just think it's a, it's a relationship between I'm going to make three films 
and you put a cost value on all those, you're getting exceptional value for money. Because I would say our graduation fiction films, where we give them a cash budget, I think it's £16,000. So, and that's not to one student, that's to a team of students. But they get all the kit, all the post-production resources, um, all the t- kind of facilities support. That short is probably worth more like 70 grand. So I think it's being thought, it's being pragmatic about it. And if you think you can self motivate yourself to make three short films in two years without that, then good, good luck to you. But a lot of people can't. A lot of people don't have the connections. A lot of people don't have the equipment. A lot of people don't have the access to resources. And, and I do believe that coming to film school creates relationships and networks that last them forever. You know, um, Lynn Ramsey still works with the same sound designer she worked with at the school. Nick Park still works with the same composer he worked with at the school. You know, these are graduates from 30, 20, 20 plus years ago, longer in Nick's case, and um, they're still working with a lot of the same people. So what's that about? You, and it, a lot of it is to do with the fact you go through the fire together, you make film, you bond. By the way, there's nothing else to do in Beaconsfield other than make films, so you really, you really immerse yourself in it. And I think if you can do that, if you're a self-starter and you can do that on your own outside of that environment, go for it. But I do think there's a there's a false myth perpetuated, which is you can work your way through from the bottom to the top just on merit. And I'm like, actually, you can't because people are very risk averse and they want to usually see a showreel or a body of work that, re- that shows you're ready to be the editor of this show or the cinematographer of this show and so on. So those are my... Yeah, and, but, but the other thing is, it's a lot of fun. You know, somebody just said to me this morning, they were like, a, a graduate, they said, oh, I miss, really miss film school because it was a part of my life where every day I came in and I knew I was making a film that I cared about, whereas now I'm often paid to work on other people's films. And But those two years were very precious to me because I got up every morning and it felt ut- utterly fulfilling. So, yeah, of course I'm an advocate for it. <laughs> Of course. But thank you for that very well-rounded answer. I think that was really brilliant. Now, John, I like to wrap up on Red Carpet Rookies with my own O2 in the Actors Studio, which I'm sure you and many of your students have watched a lot of. So this is a little quick fire. So if you could just say what comes into your head, first of all, are you ready? Dr. John Wardle. Yeah. Okay. Number one, what is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever been given? You catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Yeah, it's a massive thing. Be nice to people and uh, and you get what you want usually. Love it. Number two, do you have a favourite film? Yeah, I've got two really. I've got the one that you know I go back to when I'm feeling ill, which is The Shawshank Redemption. And I've got the one that probably got me into cinema, which is Louis Mao's um, uh, My Dinner with Andre. Uh, and they're just deep in my soul, deep. So for different, because obviously films, I know these aren't short answers, but films are connected often with what's happening in your life at that time, isn't it? I thought you might have said Brassed Off. Well, I love Brassed Off. And actually, Brassed Off was a film that I did tell the Beaconsfield Film Society, which is maybe where you got it from, was my favourite film. And um, the reason for that is that my family were all, were a mining family from Durham. And... I remember going to see that film with my grandma and my mum and it being like this hugely cathartic moment for us. But so, yeah, probably three. Love it. 
number, <laughs> number three, what gives you a reason to get out of bed every day to lead the NFTS? Well, every day I directly see how my work impacts other people's lives. You know, I think that's a massive privilege. The opportunities I can create for people, the introductions I can make. Yeah, I mean, just today an opportunity came in from Disney and I was able to connect a recent graduate with it and that's their career off now in a way that, you know, without me just... And somebody else could do that, obviously, but it's a great link. It makes you feel great. And, um, and I do that every day. And it's a hugely exciting thing. And also, this school has a huge buzz. You know, you come in, people tell me when they walk in through the front door, there's a great atmosphere. And it's, somebody's described it to me as like the Hogwarts of film. <laughs> well, I wish we had the buildings of Hogwarts and the magic, the obvious magic of Hogwarts. But there's definitely that sense of possibility, you know, like stuff's going to happen here. And uh, I love that. That's brilliant. Number four, which job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours? I'd be a producer. I always think that that was uh, another life. a a myth, another life. It was like sliding doors. If somebody had told me at that age, I've got, I've got three kids now and a mortgage and a life. So and being a producer is bloody hard. But, uh, <laughs> I can't reboot it, I'm afraid. But, um, but I mean, I, I'm sad about that because I think I, I sort of had, I, have, I think I've got the aptitude and the skills to do it. Number five, if you could work with one person living or dead, who would it be? Well, that's a really tough one. I think, um, well, there's people I'd love to be heads of department at the NFTS. Maybe I'll approach it that way. Hopefully one day Roger will come back as head of the party. He'll might run our fiction course. And Lynn Ramsey, you know, our cinematography course, and Lynn Ramsey might come back. She's done lots with us and run our directing course. So I've got some dreams about people I'll entice back to come and teach full-time at the NFTS at some point. Maybe one day. I'm sure they'll do that. Number six, what is a book, ideally a film book, um, you know, for careers and things like that, that everyone should read? One that I absolutely got excited about when I was younger, I haven't read it for a long time, was Robert Rodriguez's book uh, about guerrilla filmmaking. Rebel Without a Crew. Yeah, and I remember reading that and thinking, yeah, he's right, you just have to get up and do it. Why am I waiting for other people to give me permission? And I think that's a really important lesson. But John York's book um, on storytelling, Into the Woods, is amazing. Um, So yeah, there's two. Fantastic. And finally, if you won an Oscar, who would you thank? Well, I thank my wife. She's she's pretty amazing. And I thank this school. I, I, you know, I'm not a graduate of the NFTS, but I feel like I probably should be because having been here now 10 years, I learn so much every day um, about storytelling, about different facets of the industry, about how teams function and how to be a creative leader and, and every day, not, not personally, but I witness other people trying to do it and sometimes getting it right and sometimes getting it wrong. And I've learned so, so much from that. So I feel like I'm sort of a freeloader in that I, I don't have to, I don't get the two-year limited version of it. I get to be here the whole time. And on that note, our time must come to a close. Thank you so much, John, for your time and your wisdom and advice for the next generation of Filmmakers and Crew. No problem. Thanks, Mike. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To help us grow and be able to interview more amazing film and TV professionals, please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. 
If you're interested in regular updates, the best thing you can do is join our mailing list at redcarpetrookies.com or alternatively, find us on Instagram at redcarpetrookies or on Twitter at rcrookiespod. I also tweet regularly about my own learnings in the business at Mike F Battle on Twitter, so please do come and say hi. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time.